Well, good morning. morning. Happy 4th of July weekend to you. We're going to continue this morning in our series on Psalms. And a couple of the worship songs that we sang this morning uh, kind of jogged my memory of an interview I saw with Muhammad Ali. Shortly after his passing, I, I went on this like binge of watching, just basically watching Muhammad Ali talk because it was incredibly entertaining. Uh, he always said something that was worth hearing. Uh, and this morning we were singing, you know, forever he is glorified, forever he is lifted high. Um, we're singing, you know, that Revelation song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And I just, I remember this one clip I saw, it's Muhammad Ali, he's having kind of a sit-down interview, it's like an extended thing, and he's doing his normal uh, kind of braggadocious sort of thing. And then in the middle of it, he turned very, very serious, and he started talking about eternity and the way that he, the only way he can picture eternity is to picture himself uh, sitting on a beach, and every thousand years, he lifts up one grain of sand, he carries it off of the beach, and he sets it down somewhere else, and his objective is to clear the beach of sand. One grain of sand at a time, every thousand years. And he said, that's the only way I can conceptualize eternity. That that's the closest thing I can think of of what eternity would be like, is that if for a thousand years I removed one grain of sand off the beach, that by the time I cleared the beach, that would be eternity. And I remember listening to that and thinking two things. Number one, that'd be mind-numbingly boring. (laughs) And number two, that... My life, our lives, if, say, you're going to live 100 years, would represent a fraction, 10% of the time of the removal of one grain of sand. And that that's what you get. You get a fraction of the removal of a single grain of sand in Muhammad Ali's vision of eternity. And that in your little fraction there, in your 70, 80, 90, 100 years, whatever it might be, Uh, less or more, you get this full range of human experience. And it comes with all of the seasons of life and the emotions that accompany those. And that the Bible makes it very clear that our goal as, as human beings, the reason that God puts humanity here on earth is to bring him glory and praise in the midst of your fraction of the removal of one grain of sand. And so what we're doing over the course of this series is looking at these various seasons of life and saying, okay, how in the midst of this This season of life, do I respond to the Lord in worship, no matter what it might be? Whether it be the depths of despair or just the heights of praise and triumph and uh, victory and success in our lives or anything in between. And so what we did is we started with Psalm 145, that is this beautiful depiction of kind of some of the qualities of God, that He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And that he is those things at all times. And because of that, he's worthy of praise at all times. And then last week, we went all the way to the extreme of the absolute pit of despair. The lowest of lows in your life. How's it possible to worship the Lord in the midst of that? When he feels like he has has just abandoned you in the midst of your suffering, how is it that you respond to the Lord and worship him in the midst of that? And today we're going to swing all the way to the other side. When the Lord feels incredibly close, 
when it's when it is just you know the post summer camp post retreat kind of feeling where you come back and it just feels like you and the Lord are BFF and it's never going to change that means best friends forever and that's never going to change. How do I worship the Lord in the midst of that? And the rest of this series is going to fall somewhere in that spectrum. From the depths of despair and God feeling very distant to just the peak of closeness and intimacy with God. How do we worship the Lord in all of those times? How do we bring him the, play, the praise and glory that he desires from our lives regardless of the season of life we might be in, in the midst of our fraction of one grain of sand of a thousand years? How do we do that? What does it look like? Well, this morning we're going to dive into Psalm 19. And uh, C.S. Lewis describes this psalm this way. He said, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world which is lofty praise. There's 150 psalms. He says this is the greatest poem. There are countless numbers of songs and lyrics out there that have been written over time, and he says this is the greatest one of them that's ever been penned. No one's ever written anything greater than this. So what does Psalm 19 say? Here it is. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I just want to give you some kind of generals about Psalm 19 as we jump in here. David is the author, again, three for three on David being the author of our Psalms. And it This psalm kind of falls into two categories within uh, ways that you can divide up the book of Psalms. The first six verses are about nature, and there are a number of psalms that speak to the beauty of creation, God as creator. In fact, some of the Bible's most beautiful descriptions of God as the creator of everything and the world around us are found within psalms. Psalm 8, Psalm 104, Psalms 146 through 150 all talk about God as creator and in nature as he has created it. The second portion of the psalm, verses 7 through 11, are about God's word. The most popular psalm about God's word is Psalm 119. Uh, it's the longest chapter in all of the Bible, and it is uh, well over 100 verses of just praise for God's word, for his law, for the Torah. This is a shortened version of that. Throughout Psalms, there are eight words, eight Hebrew words used to describe God's law, and six of them are found in these six verses in the middle of Psalm 19. Then David ends in verses 12 through 14 with a prayer 
He responds to having seen the Lord in creation and having seen the revelation of God in his word with this incredible prayer that closes out uh, the psalm. And it's actually reflective of David's response to seeing the Lord so clearly in these two areas. And so we're just going to walk our way through this. Remember kind of the foundation that Brian set for us a few weeks ago is that to worship the Lord means to respond to him for who he is, what he's done, what he is doing, and what he will do. What David is about to respond to here is who God is as creator, what he's done in creating and in giving this revelation of his word, and also a look at what God's going to do in the future uh, that we'll see in his prayer at the end. So we're going to step our way through this. Here's the big takeaway this morning. When God feels near, our worshipful response to him is to remove barriers that could create future feelings of distance. As we walk through this series over you know, the remaining couple of months that are left uh, in it, I hope one of the things that you see repeatedly is that God's nearness, his presence with you never actually changes. What changes is our emotional perception of him. God is no more distant from you in the midst of your suffering than he is in the midst of your triumph. It's just that our emotional response is such that we feel alienated from God. We feel close to God. The reality is that he, his nearness is the same at all times. He is always incredibly close. Scripture says he's near to the brokenhearted. We just don't feel that way at times. Scripture said he's very near to those who rejoice. It's easier to feel that way when we're in the midst of something successful or triumphant or in a season of rejoicing in our lives. The challenge becomes responding to him at all times regardless of the season of life. And when things are going great and you've got the post-summer camp kind of thing going on in your life, our response to him in worship should be to eliminate future barriers that could make him feel distant. We should just want to do everything we can to maintain the feeling of closeness. And so we're going to step our way through this and see how David arrives in that place. The first six verses are all about creation. They're all about God as creator. In fact, what they show us is that nature provides this continual reminder, a constant reminder, that God is continually worthy of praise. Look at some of what David says here. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Those two words, declare and proclaim, are actually perpetual in their nature. It's as if David is saying, the heavens keep on declaring, and the sky keeps on proclaiming. Day to day, night to night, it never stops. And even though they don't speak in audible words like we use, you can't help but hear them. You can't help but see them. I want to stop and just make a really quick point before we go forward. We said in Psalm when we looked at Psalm 145 and started this series, that God is always worthy of praise, no matter what is going on. And nature actually provides the perfect example of that. If you were to take away all of God's qualities, the ones that we talk about and cherish so much, the fact that he's loving and forgiving and merciful and gracious and he's good and kind and caring and all those, you stripped all of those away from who God is and you just left him as creator, that alone would be worthy of our constant praise. And that's actually what we see in nature. Some star that exists, you know, way out on the boundaries of the universe that we've not ever even seen before praises the Lord just by existing as a star. 
There's a giant squid floating around in the bottom of the ocean right now that we probably won't know exists until it dies and washes up on a beach somewhere that just by doing its squid thing (laughs) is praising the Lord all the time. Maybe the hardest one for me to conceive of is that the spider that creeps into our house with the sole intent of just scaring the tar out of me, just by being shifty on eight legs and scary above anything else that's ever walked the earth, praises the Lord. I don't know how that works with a spider in particular, but I do know that everything that God has created just constantly gives him glory and praise, and David sees that. There are certain people that see that better than others. My wife sees a tree and just like that tree to her is the most glorious representation of God's love for humanity. Just by it being present. We were driving home from dinner uh, a couple weekends ago. We happened to be driving home right at the time of sunset. And I mean, it's a sunset and I see it and I'm like, hey, it's kind of a cool sunset. And my wife is like, it looks like sorbet. It's like pineapple and orange and raspberry, and God just created, he just put that out there because he loves us and because he's awesome and he's creator. It just, to her, the sky is just pouring forth praise in that moment. She sees that so well, that you can just be outside in the midst of creation and a a bee goes by and I want to kill it. And she says, don't kill it. God made it. It's so beautiful. Like it stings. It's awful. Some people see that better than others, and they can be out walking around in nature and just feel incredible closeness to the Lord. David kind of drills down in the next few verses, and he just talks about the sun in particular, and he uses a couple of analogies. It's like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, or like an athlete, a champion, he says, that's getting ready to run its course. And then he he caps all that off in verse 6 by saying that there's nothing hidden from the sun's heat. Everyone sees the groom, the bride, when they come to get married. Everyone sees the athlete as he goes out and competes and and runs its course. You cannot hide from the sun, he says. It just brings praise constantly. You can't avoid it. It's always there. It's like David laid down under the stars one night or laid down one morning and watched the sunrise and was just overwhelmed by the reality of the presence of the Lord. He's just sitting there in nature and he's day to day, this just pours forth praise. Night to night, it never stops. The heavens declare it. The sky proclaims it. Look at the sun. It's so beautiful. Look at the sorbet and the sunset. He's not the only author throughout the Bible who sees creation as constantly pointing to the goodness of who God is. Paul does it in the book of Romans. The book of Romans is, is the most linear, complete, uh, you know, the language is just so grand in its description of the gospel. From beginning to end, from the sinfulness of humanity to the justification that came through Jesus Christ and how he's the only one that can provide that. And you know where Paul starts it? He starts it by saying, you've got no excuse Because if you just open your eyes when you're outside, you'll see testimony to the greatness of who God is. Listen to this. This is from Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We're all sinful. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. 
so we are without excuse. It's like David says, look at how nature just constantly praises the Lord. And then Paul says, not only that, but you can't miss the Lord when you see him in creation. It's constantly giving us this reminder that God is continually worthy of praise. In the midst of that, David just, it's like he's overcome by it. And then he moves into the second part of this. And he says, in the same way that you cannot escape the reality of God and, and, and God being worthy of praise when you just look at creation, when you see his word, you can't escape its impact on you. The impact of God's word is completely inescapable. And he rolls through these six descriptors of God's word. And you could read them pretty briefly from verses 7 to 11 and maybe miss kind of the parallel way that he sets this up and what he's trying to say about God's word. So I don't want to challenge your intelligence, but I just want to make sure we see them all. He says that the law is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. That's the most common word for the Old Testament, for Scripture, throughout uh, the Hebrew portion of the Bible, throughout the Old Testament. It means the Torah. It's perfect. It's without blemish. It's without fault. And what does it do? It revives the soul. That word revive means it causes the soul to return. When you see the perfect law of the Lord, you can't help but return to him. To turn to him for the first time. To return to him if you've been distant. You can't help it. You see it in his word. The next is that he says his testimony is sure. It's like this warning sign. That's what testimony means. And that warning sign is to be trusted. And what does that do? It makes wise the simple. It's like you're driving up through the mountains and you get the sign that says steep grade or you get the sign that says, you know, curvy road up ahead. You didn't know it was curvy, but now you do. You were ignorant, now you're wise. You can trust the sign. It's telling you what's going to come. David says that's like God's word. It's true and you can trust it and it takes the simple and it makes them wise. Next, he says that its precepts are right. Precepts are like orders or directions, instructions, and they lead us straight. And because of that, our hearts can rejoice. It rejoices the heart. Next is that the commandment of the Lord is pure. Notice the commandment is singular. When we think of commandments, we think of like there were 10 of them from the mountain and Moses came down and they were on stone tablets. Or there are tons of them throughout the Old Testament. David lumps them all together and he says the commandment of the Lord in its totality is just radiant and pure and perfect. It's like this blinding light. And what does it do? It enlightens the eyes. Remember in Psalm 13 last week, David's prayer, give my eyes light lest I will sleep in death. He says, I want to see you. God, I want to, in the midst of my despair, I want to see you. And seeing you is going to bring light to my eyes. And here he says, if I just open your word, it brings light. It enlightens my life. There's a subtle change on the fifth one of these because it's actually about a person's response to God's word. He says, the fear of the Lord is clean and it endures forever. And you see God for who he is and you get this perfect law that turns your soul back to him. It's this warning sign that has laid out this map for you, essentially, of the dangers and warnings in life. And you see the Lord in the midst of that, and your heart rejoices, and it brings light to your eyes. You can't help but have this healthy respect and admiration and devotion and dependence upon who the Lord is. And that endures forever. 
he says. When we read this from a New Testament perspective, if you've had this kind of interaction with the Lord through a revelation with Him, it ought to bring you to the person of Jesus Christ. You see the truth of the law and you say to yourself, I can't possibly uphold that on my own, but there is someone who has gone to the cross on my behalf and died in my place. And if I put faith in him, then I am made clean. And that righteousness from Christ is going to endure forever. It is never going to fail you. Then last he says that the rules of the Lord are true and they are righteous altogether. It's just a beautiful description. It's you can't avoid the Lord, or the praise of the Lord when you look into nature. It's just always before you. And you can't avoid the impact of his word in your life. It's likely that while talking about creation here, some of you, is talking about nature, God is creator, some of you resonate with that. And you think, yeah, I get out into nature and, and I get, you know, ah, my soul just feels close to the Lord. I think of Ed Grush when I think of that. Ed just... He loves to be out in nature. He he sees the Lord there. He senses God there. You might be the type who really feels close to the Lord while you're in his word, while you're studying. I think of Kevin Manning when I think of that. There are other ways that people connect to God. In fact, there's a great book if you want to jot it down. It's called um, Sacred Pathways by Gary Thomas. And he lays out nine different ways that humanity typically feels closeness to the Lord, connects to the Lord. Uh, intellectual is one, that's in the word. A naturalist is another, that's outdoors. And then he gives seven others. Sensates, who feel him through the senses, that's what that means. Traditionalists, who feel close to the Lord in the midst of rituals. And if you're someone who just really connects during communion, and you think, don't you dare cut off my communion time. You give me the full three songs, please. (laughs) That you're probably a traditionalist. I think of Mark Knutzman when I think of that. If you ever just get a chance to peek over at Mark during communion, it's beautiful. He clearly is connecting to the Lord. He feels very close to him. Aesthetics, they like solitude and simplicity. Put myself in that category. Activists, they feel close to the Lord doing God's work, usually in like an evangelistic or a a social missionary type uh, way. And so our folks over in Western Asia, there's a strong chance that some of them have this activist bent. They feel close to the Lord while doing his work. Caregivers, they feel close to the Lord in serving others, meeting tangible needs. Enthusiasts, if you've ever been uh, to a Christian concert, there's usually one person who almost always bought floor seats who, is, who dances in the aisle the entire concert, never stops, does not care that there are people around, just dances the whole time. That's an enthusiast. They feel close to the Lord in these outward expressions of praise. If you're someone who feels very comfortable lifting your hands in worship or or bowing before him, falling to your knees. You might be an enthusiast that that outward expression is important to your connection to the Lord. And then the last one is contemplatives. Typically feel close to the Lord in deep prayer or meditation and thought. You can connect to God in any sort of way. Whether it be in nature or the word like David is talking about, there are things that usher us into his presence. And what matters here at this point is what David says while he feels close to the Lord after seeing him in nature, and after seeing him in his word, David turns to a response. And his response is maybe a little bit surprising. It begins in verse 12. Who can discern his heirs? 
Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. David's response looks like a couple of things, but the first of them is a commitment to holiness. We tend to only deal with our sins when they're wrecking our life. That we only think about avoiding sin when it's got some firm grip on our life and is throwing everything into chaos. At that moment, we think to ourselves, you know what I should do? I should be serious about trying to clean up the sin in my life. David is a little different here. He's seeing the Lord in nature and feeling close to him and seeing the Lord in his word and and the impact is indescribable to him. He feels the presence of the Lord so closely that he says, I don't ever want this to end. I don't ever want to put something in my life that might create a feeling of distance with the Lord. So God, keep me from sin. Keep me from hidden ones. Keep me from intentional ones. I want to be blameless and pure. When we're in periods of life, seasons of life where we feel close to the Lord, our response should be, God, I don't ever want this to end. I just always want to feel close. And I know that sometimes I feel distant because of my own sin. That my sin puts barriers between me and you, God. Would you keep me from those things? It's important to note when we talk about this that a commitment to holiness like this, a commitment to living according to God's word is a response to salvation, not a requirement for it. That we want to live lives that are obedient to God and to what he has said and that model this the the life of Christ and are holy in that sort of way because we have been saved, not in order to be saved. Gerald Wilson says that this way, the law marks out the boundaries of holy living in the presence of a holy God. The law was not an entrance examination to determine who was in or out. Rather, the law was a way of life taken by those already committed to the Lord. Obedience to the Lord serves as a response to faith, not a requirement to faith. In seasons of life where you feel the closeness of the Lord, make a commitment to holiness. At that point, take a good hard look at your life and say, what are the areas of sin or temptation that have a presence within my life? And Lord, I want those gone. Then he goes one step further. He says, this isn't just about outward action because he also surrenders his motivations to the Lord. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. David prayed for outward integrity in his behavior and his actions. Keep me from presumptuous sin. Now he prays for inner integrity. It's like David is saying, I just don't want to be a law abider in behavior only. I want to cherish it and uphold it to the core of who I am. This is what we talked about throughout the Sermon on the Mount. That as people who have placed our faith in Jesus... We should want to be obedient at a heart level, not just an outward behavioral level. And then David ends with one little tag on the end that's incredibly important for us because we've got to look to Jesus. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It should be that we read verses 12 through 14 and we say to ourselves, that's not possible. 
I want that. I want that when I feel close to the Lord. I want that when I feel distant from the Lord. I want to be obedient. I want to stay far from sin, but I just can't do it. That's because we need a rock and we need a redeemer, and that's only available through the person of Jesus Christ. The means of escaping the power of sin is not found within yourself or your ability to act righteously. It's found only in Jesus Christ, who was delivered to us as a baby. He lived among humanity. He was crucified for us and resurrected triumphantly before us. And only through his power and the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you do you have the ability to start overcoming the sin in your life. We can't perfectly and unendingly avoid willful sin. And because that's the case, we can't perfectly and unendingly avoid unwillful sin, hidden sins, like David says. Our motivations can't always be pure, but what we can do is constantly grow in our likeness to Christ thanks to his work on the cross and the power of the Spirit within those who believe in Jesus. Our response in times of nearness to the Lord ought to be one that says, God, I don't ever want this to end. I'm committing to holiness, to rooting out the sin in my life. I'm surrendering my motivations to you, and I'm doing all of that by looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, as Hebrews says, that his power would help me overcome these things so that I never feel distant from you again, God. There have been a couple of, of season, prolonged seasons in my life where I really felt the nearness of the Lord. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up as, as we close. I really felt close to the Lord. And I can remember thinking to myself, you know what would be best right now? Like intellectually, like on a big scale best, a macro level best, would be if I just died now and went to be with Jesus. I wouldn't have to worry about sin anymore. I wouldn't have to worry about the trials and temptations and struggles and the difficult periods of life. I could just go and be with Christ and I long for that so bad. Like Paul, it is better for me to depart and be with Christ. I long to depart and be with Christ, excuse me, but it's better, he said, for me to stay here. And that's the reality. If there wasn't work for believers to do here on earth, and when you put your faith in Jesus, God would just take you home to be with him. But he wants to make his glory known through believers who worship and glorify him. Which means in these periods of life, when we feel incredibly close to the Lord, we ought to commit to looking like Jesus as much as we can. Remove the barriers. Get rid of them. So that future feelings of distance don't come, or they don't come as often. That's what it looks like to respond to the Lord in the midst of our closeness to Him. All the while looking to our rock and our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do here is what we've been doing over this this series, which is, we're going to sing this psalm. Uh, but instead of it being performed, we're actually going to engage in this one corporately. It's a little bit easier to sing together than the last couple have been. Um, the words to this song are a portion. It's actually the final prayer here of Psalm 19. And, and we're just going to respond in worship to the Lord by singing uh, this psalm together. So if you would stand up, I'll pray. We'll worship here together. We'll sing together. And then uh, Joel will dismiss us. Lord, thank you for this morning. God, thank you that you are creator. That we can't escape the greatness of your glory because it just resounds from the heavens around us, Lord. We step outside and we see it rain or we see a sunset or we see the hideousness of a spider, Lord. 
and your glory and fame and praise is on display right there before us, Lord. I'm thankful that your word and its impact are inescapable, God, that we turn to you in your word and we can't help but see the greatness of who you are and what you've done on our behalf, Lord, and the fact that you're coming back again. And God, however it is that we might connect with you, whether it's one of those avenues or a different one, Lord, when we feel close to you, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, looking to our rock and our redeemer, God, would you help us to commit to lives of holiness, that commit to a life of longing to feel in your presence, Lord. God, would you do that work at a heart level within us, God, at the level of our motivations, Lord. Help us to strive to commit to lives of holiness, looking to Christ as our only hope. It's in his name we pray, amen.
be a blessing in your eyes, Jesus. And I thank you that we can look to you, our rock and redeemer, God. We can look at you, um, God, for our righteousness, Father, and that you see us as blameless, Jesus, because of what you did on the cross. God, I pray that in every area of our life we would, um, by your spirit, um, aim for this holiness, God. Um, We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day.